Hi all and welcome to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. Today we're joined by Ryan Floyd, founding managing director of Storm Ventures. He focuses on our early stage enterprise SaaS and has primarily invested in applications and cloud infrastructure related companies. Ryan is super dedicated to making founders smart to VC before raising and has done some important work with this on his YouTube channel, Ask VC. When Ryan is in the office, Ryan spends his time surfing and with his family. If you'd like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, please reach out to Andres or myself through LinkedIn or at TheEuropeanVC.com. If you have some love for this show, and hopefully you do, do subscribe, follow us and show your love. And don't forget that if you're about to raise international round, let us know. We'll be happy to introduce you to relevant VCs. We reached out to Ryan for this episode because he's doing some super important work, as I just said. He's doing that with his YouTube channel, Ask a VC. In it, Ryan shares his insights in a super digestible manner for founders. And we really think it's a true best practice for VCs, so do check it out. What made us reach out to Ryan for this is that he did some videos on advisors that we think is super important and super interesting. We have a lot of emerging managers on our listener base, and they are oftentimes advisors already and trying to crack into VC. So that is why we reached out to Ryan and really just want to dig into that. We know it's all about Europe, so we're sorry, excuses for bringing another US investor on the European VC. But we are actually quite sure that once you hear what Ryan has to say, you'll totally understand because Ryan is truly a great guy and we're really looking forward to talking with him. So having that said, and after the super long intro, welcome to the show, Ryan. How's everything? Hey, great to be here. Yeah, and actually you're right. I mean, obviously I'm based in the US, but we do a ton in Europe and have a bunch of great, great companies there. Pipedrive, Algolia, TalkDesk, Innovent, Digital Shadows. So we've spent a lot of time there and look forward to spending more. Yeah, we're happy you're here. And I know that David knows some of those investments quite well. So that's interesting. Ryan, just to start off, our first topic, which is, of course, advices. And here we'd like to talk to you about what should advices think about when they engage founders for an advisory relationship? Well, so I recorded a video a couple of weeks ago, which people can also take a look at if they want to go deeper on this. But when I think about advisors, the reality is nobody builds a successful company by themselves really it takes a team of people dedicated to really you know building something you know a value and part of that team generally is going to be some advisors and those advisors can come in a bunch of different sort of roles you know i think one of the easiest ones to understand is if you're a new founder and let's say you have a technical background you know kind of a, a typical you know maybe an engineering background you know, maybe you don't know a lot about sales. I mean, why would you? You've never functionally spent a lot of time in a sales organization. So getting some folks who have deep domain expertise in sales and really understand how to present a product and talk about it with a customer is important because, you know, you may take for granted some things, some things just may not be that obvious and advisors can save you a lot of time and effort and really help make you successful. I think the other thing to mention about, you know, a lot of advisors is oftentimes they're already successful in their careers in terms of what they're doing. They may be in another startup. They may be part of a larger company. Maybe they were an investor earlier on in their career. And a lot of these folks just want to give back. They want to make other people successful because they know they were successful because other people helped with that. I think there's a mix of some of that in most of the advisor relationships that I know. I always view it kind of like you have the advisor stage or you have the stage where you as a founder still haven't taken on capital. And that is where you oftentimes have a lot of advisors around you, but it's also oftentimes not formalized yet. 
And then comes the stage where you start taking on investment, typically angel money to begin with. And how do you see that transition if you're an advisor working with the company already? And then comes the angels who comes with money. Do you know any best practices for tackling that shift? Because this is where we often see advisors being pushed out a bit of the game because now comes the guy with the money. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's good. It's a good question. So first of all, I think from an advisor perspective, you need to approach the relationship in that you have something to give, not something to take. Now, that doesn't mean an advisor needs to invest a tremendous amount of their time with nothing in return. But I don't think, you know, I make a distinction between a consultant and an advisor. You know, consultants are really folks that are, you know, trying to make a career out of giving advice, I guess, and, you know, in, in consulting with companies. And it's usually defined by projects and deliverables, and there's usually some cash compensation involved in. It's typically more work. Advisors tends to be a little bit different where it's, you know, gonna be a little bit more dependent on what's going on in the business and it's gonna shift and change over time. An advisor that might be particularly good at one stage may not be the person who's gonna be best able to give advice at the next stage. And so I think from an advisor standpoint, really just thinking about where you can be helpful rather than trying to just stay engaged probably is the perspective and place to come from in terms of working with founders. You know, advice is free, okay? And so there's a lot of people that give a lot of advice. And you have to be, I think, cautious as a founder with all those people surrounding you. It can just be really noisy at times. And I think, you know, advisors just need to kind of appreciate that, that it can be tricky to sort of, you know, navigate through that as a founder with everybody sort of talking in your ear. When investors get involved, Typically, I mean, I think advisors are awesome. I mean, there's never a situation I get involved in a company. I'm like, oh, stop talking to that person. Unless it's terrible advice, which happens sometimes. Generally, I mean, I'm, I'm encouraging founders to spend time with others, to get other perspectives, because going back to where we started, you know, it really takes a team to build the business. And so I think, you know, great investors will welcome advisors open arm and you know, it's something hopefully founders can keep involved in the business. Let me play with an analogy here, Ryan, which is as a parent, for example, you don't want to do everything for your kids. You want them to learn and do it themselves. So best example, right? They have to study because they have an exam or whatever. And so it's not our role as parents to do it for them. It's to empower them to do it. And something I've seen in some ecosystems, and I wonder if it's an ecosystem maturity thing or not. That's why I'm asking is sometimes founders kind of want advisors to be way too operationally involved in stuff. What are your thoughts about this? What are the good practices as a founder? What to expect from an advisor? But then on the other hand, as an advisor, might you actually be disservicing the startup you actually want to help? Yeah, so I think the moment that an advisor gets operationally involved in a business beyond, you know, let's say interviewing potential hires or something, I mean, the, 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 there's some involvement that I think is totally reasonable. But at some point, if they're really operationally involved in a business, then really they've kind of transitioned also to more of a consulting role, or there's at least a component of that in the relationship. And then I think it's you know, important to design then whatever the compensation is then around that kind of operational role. And you're right that if founder relies on a consultant over time, they're not building that expertise internally. But at the same time, the reality is, you know, it's hard to, you can't start with being an expert in all these different areas. An easy example would be, you know, finance. When you're starting out as a founder, finance is pretty straightforward. There's not a lot going on. You don't have any customers. Your burn rate's very low. But at the same time, there's a lot of things you need to take care of on the finance side that you probably don't have a lot of expertise in. That's something you really ought to get a consultant or somebody to help you do because they're going to be able to do it better. They're going to be able to give you best practices but it's not really an advisor. It's more of a consultant sort of relationship.
what you said, uh, advice is free. Yes, it is. But there's also a stage, and this is what we are seeing a lot in Europe, that advisory agreements aren't, or advisory partnerships with the founders are often not formalized. And that is something that I see as that is actually founders short selling themselves because the difference from having an advisor who is just yet another voice uttering out a lot of advice here and there whenever it fits them, going into that formalized relationship is different. Could you speak to where you see the value and, and when advisors should say, I, I actually really think that we should look at forming a long-term engagement where we're talking one percentage or a half percentage for me helping versus the advisor saying, and I, that's not the game, that's not what we're doing. I'm just helping out on the side every other week or whatever. Yeah, so I think that relationship really need, in, in the sort of equity or, you know, that it really needs to be driven by the founder. Advisors out there may not like to hear this, but it's really not up to them. I mean, I think founders need to help build the team around them that makes sense rather than the other way around. And I think advisors need to, you know, people that are out there that are capable of giving to startups their time and their experience, you just need to be thoughtful about whether or not there's resonance there with the founders that they're working with. You know, presumably they have a limited amount of time that they can be allocating to any particular, you know, startup. And I think the way most of these things get started is you spend some time, you have some conversations, you go through some challenges. You discuss them and both founders and advisors get a sense of whether or not there's a good fit. At that point then, it usually makes sense to formalize something, but it's going to be driven by a founder rather than an advisor trying to designate, hey, for my time, this is what I charge. Because again, when I hear that, I hear more of a consulting relationship. I hear then where there ought to be deliverables, there ought to be very clear sets of things that a consultant or an advisor is going to deliver if they're setting this up as a sort of like a practice that they have. In other words, being an advisor, it's almost like it's a privilege. It's not something that's a career. You can't, you can't feed your family off of being an advisor. And so my two cents for those folks that think about it that way would be to structure more of a consulting relationship where there's more, you know, concrete things operationally that fit in because after all, advice is not constrained, obviously, to an advisor. I mean, the, probably the best advisors in any company are going to be your executive team. That's one of the main things you're going to rely on them for, right? I mean, you're hiring great people around you to help build the business and to really give you advice as CEO and founder about, you know, what the next moves are and really to kind of, you know, talk it through. You begin to sort of like shift the relationship more to something like that. Let me use your own words there, <laughs> which is advising is not a career, but some people actually just love doing that and would love to find a way to make that a career. And you kind of just hinted to it. So uh, maybe on that note, could you just give us kind of a quick rundown of your thoughts about advisors wanting to break into investing? So breaking into venture or eventually even into angel investing? Yeah. Yeah, so clearly as an investor, you spend a lot of time giving advice and opinions about things, hopefully based on a lot of experience that you've had, which is what has enabled one to have raised money and to be given the privilege and responsibility of, of allocating the capital. The job though of an investor, it's not to invest. The job of an investor is to generate a return for their limited partners. So advice is not part of the job description per se. I mean, it, it is to the extent that it helps an investor drive a return. For me, I, you know, I have a bunch of individuals and pension funds who are stewards of capital for employees and other groups that have entrusted money to me in order to meet the requirements they have for their own organizations. And I feel a tremendous amount of responsibility to deliver returns back to my investors over time. And so 
it's a different mentality a bit rather than, you know, yeah. my job as an advisor. I don't see my job as an advisor. I see my job as, you know, generating returns for my investors. And part of the way I do that potentially is giving advice and working very close with startups. In terms of breaking into venture, it's not an easy question to answer because just from the standpoint of there's so many different paths to do it. There's not, you know, one path to go down. There's lots of different ways. You know, I think one of the easiest things to do if you don't have, I guess, Taking a step back, the first question I'd ask is whether someone has capital or not. Like, do they have any of their own means to invest or not? If they do have a means to invest, and I'm not talking about big dollars, even if it's 5,000, 10,000, I mean, it's relatively small dollars. There's lots of ways for them to start kind of angel investing and building a portfolio and starting to build out their network of people that they know and generating opportunities for themselves to invest. That's a good place to sort of start, I think, with venture because it gives you very quickly that appreciation of what it means to be an investor where it really gets real with dollars versus just giving advice, which none of your money is really at stake. To the extent people don't have dollars to invest on, and there's lots that don't, you know, I think really focusing on building out your network and really thinking about where is it that you can really hopefully find great opportunities that may not be obvious to everyone else. Maybe it's based on your background in terms of what you've done from an industry standpoint, that you've been very deep in a particular area in tech, or maybe it's a particular community that you've come out of that you know you think there's a lot of potential for opportunities there. And that could be everything from a business school, kind of university environment to you know maybe it's a community of color where you can get those underrepresented founders more visibility and support them getting funded. Finding some things where you can do something to really show a potential venture firm that you're going to be able to generate great opportunities. Yeah. That's probably a good place to start. You kind of touched on the kind of the fiduciary duty there. So the privilege, but also the responsibility of managing someone else's money. What's your take on the skill set needed so that it's not overwhelming, right? So that what is the skill set that you need to be empowered as a venture investor to be able to actually fulfill that duty that you have? You have to have obviously confidence that you can generate a return. I mean, you have to have confidence that whatever strategy you're pursuing as an investor, you believe that you're going to be able to reasonably deliver returns over time. There's no guarantees. I mean, there's lots of great investors that have ultimately gone on to lose money for their LPs. And obviously every investment that you make doesn't work out fabulously well. You know, we've been fortunate at Storm that every one of our funds over the last 20 years has been profitable and most of our funds now are 3X net or better. That's not to say that that's always going to be the case. Something may not go as, you know, we hope. And so we have to continue yeah. to sort of work at it day in, day out to make sure that we can continue to follow a strategy that we feel confident can deliver returns. The most important thing is just going back to what I said about accountability and feeling that stewardship for LP's money. And realizing that your job, it's not an investor. It's not an advisor. It is very simply put, it's to generate a return for your LP. And if people are not in the game for that, then it's not the right wolf. And they shouldn't be taking anybody's money. And there's lots of great investors that are not interested in being stewards for other people's capital. And then, you know, and maybe they're just investing out of their own account. And that allows them then to do lots of things, risky things, you know, they can invest in whatever they want, you know, because it's their own dollars. So they don't really need to be accountable to anybody else. Anyway, it's probably a longer conversation, but that's how I would begin to think about it. No, but I think I, I think it's very interesting. Uh, also, because you most often hear in the popular media about the value add of a VC investor and, and the value add, of course, being advice and all the other things that the VC brings. But here you're saying you have to put that fiduciary duty first. And that is then your, your way of attaining that 
is of course creating a value add for the startups, but you seem to put it very much as a secondary thing. At the risk of stating the obvious about being a steward for other people's capital kind of comes first, but certainly in terms of a skill set of what makes a great investor, I think being able to contribute to the success of a business is definitely part of that equation. You know, no, no question. I mean, I think there's other things that are equally important, the ability to generate great opportunities, the ability to pick which opportunities to invest in are probably equally as important to being able to contribute value add after the investment. I mean, you don't have to look any further than let's say a seed investor that was the first investor into Uber or something, right? How important was the value contributing to that equation in terms of how much money was made in that investment relative to being a part of the deal flow and selecting that investment. Mm -hmm. Those two things, selecting investment and seeing that opportunity, it'd be hard to argue those aren't just as important as the ability to contribute yeah. value. And that's not to say maybe they weren't valuable too to the team early on, but certainly being able to pick it and seeing it in the first place were pretty critical. For an advisor or anyone wanting to get into VC and start investing, if you just have five or $10,000, then that's actually enough. I'd say in the US, yes, you have very strong syndicates for the very early stage. You're really good at that. Unfortunately, we're not in Europe, so at least my experience is that getting into investing as an angel requires a lot more than five or 10,000 euros in a Danish context. So if you would view or take the view that the opportunity of being in these deals in a large syndicate isn't there, what would you say would be the path for people to pursue then? Do we have any reflections on that? And, and with the with the goal being eventually to uh, working yeah. in venture? Right. Yeah, yeah. Breaking into venture. So create a kind of shadow portfolio. Yeah. You know, companies that you want to be an investor in, but you don't have the capital to be an investor in. And why you want to be an investor in those businesses. What's your investment thesis around it? And, you know, and why? What supports that logic of wanting to be an investor there? Generally, for most people, honestly, I would say angel investing is probably a pretty good way to lose a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's very, it's very difficult, I think, to be investing small amounts of money as an angel and generate, you know, great returns. I think, you know, most great angel investors found success because they invested in a lot of companies and they only need a few of them then to turn out to be successful, but they have to invest in many to get that result. And so I think just investing selectively can be a pretty tricky way to do it. And so, you know, build, yeah, like I said, so building, you know, building a portfolio of companies you'd want, you know, you'd want to be involved in looking at even public companies and thinking about what drives success of those businesses. I think writing blog posts or, you know, putting out content about different businesses and why you're interested in this one versus this one and putting yourself out there around trying to be thoughtful about where these companies are going and why and what drives you to believe one will be successful versus another. Because at the end of the day, I mean, that's really what ought to underpin any investment to begin with anyway. And so, you know, if you don't have capital and maybe you don't have access, that would be a good way to start. And certainly from a partner standpoint at my firm, I'm less interested maybe in junior people having invested actually in companies. And I'm more interested in what's their thought process. Can they think through what an investment ought to look like? Can they look at a new area and really analyze what makes for a potentially great opportunity in that area? Is the market large enough? Can they think through all of those different components on their own? That's what could make a really good entry point, I would imagine, at virtually every single venture firm out there. I love that tip, Ryan. <laughs> I want to double down on it. So building a shadow portfolio and really, you know, 
putting out there the way you think, what is your thesis behind it, and maybe even producing content on that. So I just wanted to repeat it so our listeners retain it, because I think it's a really cool tip that we don't hear that often. Let me maybe ask a provocative question here, <laughs> which is we've actually had some interesting conversations with venture investors advising for more operators as investors, that we need that in Europe. And we've been talking about the role from advisor to venture investor and not from operator to venture investor. Can you just share some reflections on these two routes into venture and what is needed for the industry to keep on moving forward? Yeah, well, you know, I <laughs> I think you'll find every operator will say that the best way to be a venture investor is to have been an operator. <laughs> just like you'll find everybody that's gone to business school will tell you the best way to be successful in venture is to go to business school, or m most will. I think, you know, it's, uh, you know, people will have a bias to yeah. what, they, what they know and it's genuine and it's authentic. I think the reality, when you look at venture, you know, the people that have been successful come from a lot of different backgrounds. Just having been an operator certainly does not drive success. Absolutely not. You know, you can think of lots of examples, like Mike Moritz uh, at, at Sequoia came out of it, you know, he was, he was a journalist, right? Before jumping in at, at, at Sequoia. So I think it probably matters less about what it is that you did and matters more about what that skill set is you bring into venture. I mean, one of the pitfalls just on the operator side, which I'd probably put myself in that category. You know, I came out of an operating background at an optics company 20 years ago and jumped into venture. I think one of the dangers as an operator is you think that you can influence a lot more often than you actually can. Because as an operator, you're in the business, you can help make other people successful, you're all kind of working as a team, but you quickly realize once you're on the other side as an investor, you're kind of on the outside looking in. You know, some people use the analogy, you know, you're on the sidelines of the game, yelling, screaming from the sidelines and cheering sometimes and, you know, crying at other times, but you're not, you know, on the field, right? Playing. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and that's a tough yeah. transition for a lot of operators because, you know, you're used to being able to really impact outcomes. What does that mean? You know, maybe you'll select teams that maybe aren't as high quality or that, that don't have all the ingredients for success thing that you can compensate for them as an investor. And generally, it's pretty hard to do that. So I didn't come from, you know, anyway, from lots of different backgrounds. What really matters, I think, is your ability to generate opportunities, right? So the network, are you really plugged into tech? And that's gonna, you know, your ability to diligence opportunities, your ability to hire and recruit executives, your ability to introduce new potential advisors, you know, partnerships, your understanding of the broader ecosystem, all of that contributes a lot to success. So if you're an operator, that's great, but do you have those other things? Also, if let's say you came out of some other background, if you don't have an appreciation for what it takes to operate a business, it's gonna be probably pretty challenging too because it's gonna lead you to not really understand maybe what takes a long time or what particular challenges lie around the corner or why something isn't working which will enable you to ask you know, the right question. So it takes a mix of skill sets and you know, I think over time venture and being an investor, it's a thing unto itself that you know, people will you know, grow stronger over time. Hopefully they will have made a lot of great investments and you'll begin to you know, compensate for your own weaknesses based on you know, your background that you came from. Ryan, I have a question that goes to you actually being a founding partner of Storm Ventures. And that's of course, 
it's a long time ago now, <laughs> but we're seeing uh, concepts like proof of concept funds, uh, very small funds being the way for emerging managers to break into venture. Do you have any views on that and, and maybe contrast that to how you did it in the old days? <laughs> yeah, it does feel like the old days now. I feel like a dinosaur. I mean, who has who has the same job for, you know, 25 years? Um, <laughs> nobody. Uh, look, I think all the, um, let me just first say, all the innovation that's happening in venture, I think it's awesome. Uh, it's really great because I think it's enabling a lot of people to get involved in venture and investing that couldn't or would have been really hard for them to be involved, you know, 20 years ago. Take Europe even, right? I mean, in terms of what's happened there, the just the blossoming of opportunities in Europe over the last five, yeah. you know, years, 10 years, it's just been amazing. And that's a lot because, you know, access to capital, I think, has just gotten gotten easier. So I think all of that is good. My advice to someone trying to break into venture, I don't think you have to go raise a proof of concept fund, but certainly that's one thing to kind of, you know, sure, sure. That's something you can go, you know, you can go do. I think that's going to probably skew to doing seed investing, uh, you know, uh, pre-revenue because it's hard to have a proof of concept fund that's going to be large enough to do, you know, A round or B round or, C, you know, later stage investing. So I'd say it kind of depends what you want to do. There's lots of opportunities at later stages as well, which can be really exciting, you know, just as there are at the very early stages. So it kind of depends, I guess, ultimately what gets that person excited. But I think all the innovation is fantastic and it's really made us all as venture investors better. Let's talk a bit of go to market. Your partner, and this is actually true. I think I've heard Andreas talk about this book, I don't know, 2000 times already but your, your partner has written some awesome content on gtm go to market yes uh, survival to thrival would you maybe uh kind of for our listeners that don't know the book or haven't heard about it yet just kind of give us a quick rundown of what that is so we can then kind of deep dive a bit on it yeah so you know look at a really high level companies in the enterprise follow a lot of patterns that you know may not be obvious at the beginning in terms of you know how you really approach developing, you know, a product and then really thinking about, you know, that go to market motion in terms of what works. And I think trying to really just break down the elements of, you know, what will work in a go to market environment for your product is really what it's all about. That it's not this black box mystery that if you follow some steps, you can really begin to unravel that mystery. And once you can unlock that go-to-market strategy that's that's working, you really can invest and accelerate. Yeah. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're selling to security or you're selling to HR or you're selling, you know, CRM. If you're selling to an enterprise buyer, they're very similar journeys. And I often tell people it has a lot more to do with the price point that you're selling at rather than who you're selling to or what it is that you're selling. You know, are you selling a $5,000 or a $10,000 a year subscription where you really need to have a product-led strategy because the cost of sales driving a product at that size can be challenging versus maybe a product that's, you know, three, $400,000 ACVs where almost by definition, it's going to be more of a consultative sale. And so, you know, just kind of walking through all that. And that's, that's really what, you know, it's all about. It's all based on, he wrote it with Bob Tinker, yeah. who was a CEO and founder of something called Mobile Iron. And, um, and they really put together that whole journey so that others could take from it and hopefully build successful businesses as well. I know Andreas is dying to kind of ask specific questions about the way you guys look at it and your model. So I'm good, Andreas, take over. <laughs> Ryan, what I see in the go-to-market space is that a lot of people talk about it, but not a lot of people have actually put it on a formula. 
the way that Tainam and Bob Tinker has. And that is my warmest recommendation to everyone uh, in the space, going in, reading it and working with the model and trying to apply it themselves because I've really seen it apply so well to both established SMEs and also startups. So in that sense, I think it's very, very powerful in the sense that anyone can just get working with it to maybe elaborate on the thinking around the different elements of it and draw the contours of it. Well, we just, you know, we just talked about it a little bit, but the way to, to think about it is really, it's a, you know, it's a framework. There's no prescriptive, like, you know, follow steps one, two, and three. There's no recipe for success, but it's a framework to really kind of think through how to kind of build on what's working over time. And as you do that, you know, you'll eventually end up in a successful spot. I'll just, you know, give you one, one example. Early on when, you know, let's say, you know, you got a little bit of revenue, founder's inclination might be, it's time for me to hire a VP of sales. I need to go hire a VP of sales and scale up my sales, but it's really been founder led sales up until that point. The founder has been the one who's been closing all the, all the customers and has been working closely on that. The problem with hiring a VP of sales at that point in time, is that most often a great VP of sales, what they're really good at are really two things. They're really good at hiring awesome salespeople and they're really good at implementing and managing a process around sales to get the best out of that sales organization. What they probably are not gonna be as good at or they haven't spent maybe time recently in their career, maybe you know years ago, was really helping to find that path forward into the customer as a salesperson, because what you find is a founder-led sales effort, founders can close all sorts of things because, I mean, they're so passionate. They know so much about the product and the market. You know, they have an ability to do things that it's just hard to expect a salesperson to do. So finding that initial salesperson that can really help you be a pathfinder forward in that sales environment and on that journey, that's kind of the first step. And so, you know, I think what the book does and the whole framework is in some ways helps you try to avoid making some of those mistakes, but really puts them into a context of why and how you ought to be thinking about this from a process standpoint. So it's just not mysterious. So that if someone says, hey, don't hire VP of sales, you really understand why that makes sense in the context of, you know, a broader framework for go to market. What I see often founders struggling with is going from that stage that you describe here where it's founder-led sales operations and then that also means that the guy running sales is also the person running everything else and that makes it automatic that everything is coherent but once you get that VP of sales in that is where you quickly lose touch so marketing starts fighting with sales and everything all throughout this supply chain and i've just found that the framework is so good at bringing everyone together in seeing the the, the company as a whole and taking ownership over every part of the value chain of the company even though you are only in sales in quotation marks of course that's exactly right i mean just it evolves and i think trying to have that kind of perspective about what worked here isn't going to scale but taking that next step, you know, kind of what to sort of think about to sort of make that next step work appropriately yeah. is the right way. And it, and it is a step function. I mean, it's, you know, you can't go from zero to 60 in a day at a company. And I think a lot of people think sometimes that money can solve that problem for you. It's like baking a cake or something. You can't just put a cake in the oven at, you know, a thousand degrees and expect it to work, right? It takes, mm -hmm. it takes time to bake that. And I think you have to sometimes respect a little bit about you know, the process it takes in making sure you have all the components right to enable you to be successful at that next stage. You can definitely, I think, increase the pace to the extent you have a lot of resources to invest against it. 
But sometimes, frankly, resources can give you a lot of uh, false signals sometimes too about you know what's working or not because it's amazing you can brute force a lot of things in like a sales process, right? In terms of like you know if you put an army of salespeople out there, you'll probably close some opportunities. Yeah. But they may not be repeatable. They may not be the customers you ultimately want. And certainly from a cost of sales standpoint, it absolutely won't be scalable. So have you really done a lot to really move your business to the next level? Because yes, you've generated some revenue, but you haven't done it in any sort of scalable way. So in some ways you've sort of incurred now this kind of like, you know, a business debt that you're going to have to solve for later. And, you know, maybe you've got the resources to do it, but, you know, there's countless examples of companies that, you know, were unable to sort of figure that out and ultimately bailed as a result. Ryan, we have gone way over time already. <laughs> so let's shift it to our grand finale. This is our quick fire round. You have 30 to 60 seconds per question here. Okay. No pressure. Uh, no pressure, of course. Uh, the first question is, what do you strongly believe that most people around you disagree with? Boy, it's hard, to say, it's hard to say something right now. What do I believe that most people disagree with? I am more bullish on tech today than I've ever been in 20 years. I love that answer. Uh, what's common advice that you hear advices giving to founders that you strongly disagree with? Don't trust your venture investors. It drives me crazy. It drives me crazy. I mean, I, and, 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 and the reason is because the only thing that I can compete on with founders, founders don't care what my returns are. Right? They're not, they're not investors in my fund, right? No. So they could care less what my returns are, generally speaking. The only thing I can compete on is my reputation. Venture investors, I think there's a lot of guardrails built in to really making sure you do the right thing because founders can reference me easily. And if I'm a bad actor, like no one's gonna want to work with me. So I think this whole meme out there that's like, you know, venture investors are terrible, they take advantage of you, it's disappointing for me. I'm sure there's some that are out there like that but it's disappointing being on the receiving end of that. But you know, that's life. I get that. Finally question, Ryan, we believe that genius is global and we hate that opportunity isn't. How can VCs help? You know, doing this, I mean, talking to getting to a broader audience. I mean, we, you know, the reality is that we will invest anywhere in the world virtually. I mean, any, anywhere. And we close lots of deals over Zoom. And so the ability for entrepreneurs from anywhere to reach out to us It's easy. I'm easy to find. I think that's true of a lot of venture investors. The key is, and what I tell entrepreneurs, no matter where you are, is know why you're talking to a particular investor. In my case, look, I do. It's very simple. B2B SaaS companies that are half a million to a million dollars in revenue and growing. And and if you're in Europe, it's important to me you want to be in the U.S. market. If you don't want to be in the U.S. market, I'm not. I'm not the investor for you. Knowing who you're reaching out to and why, I think that's also critical. But you know, I think what venture investors can do is just get out there because, boy, great ideas come from all over the world today. It's really awesome. Follow-up question on that. Have you increased the focus on the rest of the world during COVID? And will you do that afterwards? Or has it been that way for years? I'd say in the last, like really the last 10 years, you know, five, five, really the last five years, we've been pushing aggressively, you know, rest of the world. To be honest, it's mainly Europe focused. We've done very little in Asia and Latin America, you know, just broad brushes of the world. You know, we hope to do more. You know, it's one of the reasons I'm getting out there and doing, you know, podcasts and, you know, uh, things, things like this so that we can get our message out there and, you know, and entrepreneurs can get out and, you know, and reach us. But it's a big push for us. We couldn't be more excited about what's going on all over the world. We couldn't agree more. Ryan, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Really appreciated having you on the European VC. This has been awesome. It couldn't be better. All right. Great to meet you guys. All right. Take care.
Bye. Take care, Ryan. Thank you for listening to this episode with Ryan Floyd, founding managing director at Storm Ventures. If you'd like to see more from Ryan, do follow him on LinkedIn and subscribe to Ask a VC on YouTube. And check out the treasure trove that is Storm Ventures website. It's awesome. They have some of the most interesting work on go-to-market strategy, as we've uh, spoken about. And on their podcast, they even have an episode dedicated to it in a European context. So don't miss out. The European VC is your go-to podcast for insights into European VC. Follow us at theeuropeanvc.com or whichever podcasting platform you prefer. If you would like to suggest topics or guests for a future episode, please reach out to us. We're always there for you.